Thank you for listening to the Love Your Bod Pod. Before we dive in, just my usual disclaimer that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and does not substitute individual, professional, medical, or mental health advice. Welcome back to the Love Your Bod Pod. I'm your host, Kara Crinson-Selly. I'm a certified holistic health coach, and I help humans be- human beings transform their relationships with food and their bodies so that they can create amazing lives that they love and it's my favorite work. I love doing it. I'm so grateful for it. I really love helping people step out of diet culture and like rise above it and um, connect more deeply to themselves and the woven in wisdom of their body so that like eating is easy and like fun and no big deal Um, because it can really be that way. I promise. Uh, Today, we have an awesome interview. Her name is Shelby, and she is about to finish studying public health. She's about to graduate. She's a senior, and uh, she's a listener of the pod. She reached out to me on Instagram and was like, hey, I'd love it if you could talk about how eating disorders are a public health issue. And I was like, well, girl, I think you are probably more of an expert on that than I am. I might know a little bit, but you're studying this. You've been studying it for four years. So how about you pop on the pod and we'll talk about it together. So we talk about how eating disorders are a public health issue, like why diet culture is a public health issue. And we use the framework of the socio-ecological model and we break down the four different layers of that model for change. So this is the model that they use in public health to actually create change and alleviate the public health concerns. And I'm really excited about it. I think that it's important. I love this perspective. I love that we're bringing this like academic approach to um, to health and nutrition and to see how diet culture um is like so much more of an epidemic than our media really leads us to believe. And I hope you get a lot out of it. And I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for spending your time with me today. I know that you guys have busy, full lives and you have a choice of what podcasts you listen to. And I'm so grateful that you're choosing to listen to mine and hang out with me. So with that said... Um, let's get into the interview. And if you're liking the interview, if you like this one, can you share it in your Instagram stories for me? Can you do your girl a solid and spread the message to other people? I would be so grateful. That would mean the world to me. All right, let's get into the interview with Shelby Hagen. Welcome back to the Love Your Bod pod. Today we have an awesome guest and her name is Shelby Hagen. She is a student currently finishing her bachelor's degree at the University of Wisconsin, La Crosse, in public health and community health education. As a person who has previously suffered from disordered eating, she is interested in educating about health and well-being at every size and addressing eating disorders as a public health issue by working towards preventing disordered eating behaviors from forming. She recently created a self-love and body image Instagram at Shelby Eats to pursue her passion of informing people about the toxicity of diet culture and about loving and nourishing your body without dieting or engaging in weight loss behavior. In her free time, Shelby loves playing soccer, cooking, and baking delicious foods and being with friends and family. Shelby, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have this um, conversation with you. I think it is so important and so timely. And I really love that you're going to bring, be bringing an academic background and perspective to the conversation. So one of the things that you had first mentioned to me and that we were talking about before we hit record was how while there are a lot of causes of eating disorders, negative body image and like the desire and pressure to lose weight is the best known contributing factor. And that's according to the National Eating Disorders Association. And we all know that like negative body image influence is, I'm sorry, negative body image is influenced by so many factors. But can you kind of share with us, based on what you've learned, what are the most influential sources of like body shame? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in public health, um, we like to think of things as macro level and micro level factors. Um, and that all comes together to kind of influence body image and diet culture. So on the macro level, we have social media consumption and negative messaging on social media. So if you log on to Instagram, Facebook, everyone seems to be pushing some kind of diet or disordered behavior. So I think that that's really negative because for people who are kind of looking for help, um, with health and well-being, and they're not sure where to start when they're getting this messaging. They think that that's the normal and right thing to do. Also, fat phobia is super, super common in our society, unfortunately. Um, there's a lot of fat phobia that exists online. People are just straight up cruel. And just the judgments that we make in our head about people in larger bodies. Um, it's just really important that we notice and challenge that. Um, also, fad diet popularity. This is a really, really big one, especially um, with people I know, a lot of people engage in fad dieting, unfortunately. So that can include anything from like the keto diet or paleo or anything like that, or just food micromanagement. So that can include um, obsessively tracking calories and macros. And that's definitely something that I engaged in and kind of fell into that trap. And that, well, it's something that is supposed to be good for your health, in quotes. Um, it's something that made my health so much worse by engaging in that. It's just uh, so stressful. And I mean, some people, I guess, really like it. But for me, I just found that it really was a slippery slope into disordered eating. And that's kind of how it all started for me. Um, then there's also micro level. So this can include self self deprecating commentary. So just saying um, negative things about your body is really impactful on the people around you. Um, positive reinforcement of disordered behavior. That's a huge one because when I was going through my disordered eating, people were actually saying like, oh, you're doing a great job. Like you're so strong. You have so much willpower. And I was struggling and I just needed someone to reach out and say that what I was doing was not right. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, yeah. I was just getting positive reinforcement for that. Um, also labeling foods as good or bad. Um, say you're at a family gathering and you're saying, oh, this ice cream is so bad for me. Oh, these brownies are so bad. Oh, I'm going to be good by having these veggies. Um, labeling food like that is just really not a good thing to do. And then also positive reinforcement of food guilt. So a lot of times people express um, they're feeling guilty for eating certain things and people will kind of positively reinforce that. And that's also really negative. And all of these things kind of come together and they are really um, damaging for people who have disordered eating and just for diet culture in general. Yeah, I would argue that it's just bad for all human beings. Yeah, definitely. You know? And then obviously when you, when you bring that conversation to a vulnerable person, mm -hmm. that's when disordered eating and eating disorders develop. Uh, but I would argue that a large portion of our population is engaging in disordered eating under the guise of like, fad diet popularity under the guise of health. Yes. Yeah. 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 I totally agree with that. I think that, um, it's kind of crazy when it comes to intuitive eating and me, I think that intuitive eating is something that's lost in a lot of kids at a younger age. So from Nita, again, 40% of girls age six through 12 are concerned with their weight. Um, growing up, I didn't have that concern at all in middle school, going into high school. I never really thought about it. And I think that's pretty amazing to have kept that intuitive eating for so long. Yeah. But of course, then when I was a sophomore in high school, that's kind of when Instagram came about. And now there's people posting their bodies, there's people posting advice, there's people telling you what to do. And just being in the public health world, um, of course, we want to encourage movement of any kind um, for health and well-being, just getting your body moving. But there's people on Instagram saying, oh, you have to lift weights, otherwise you're never going to get a good body and all these other negative commentary. And it's just really sad that people are kind of getting these messages on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, I think we get it so twisted, so twisted because there's so much emphasis on looking a certain way. And when we are promoting looking a certain way, we, we do it under the, under the disguise of like health and well-being. Like yeah. doctors do this too, right? So institutionalized fat phobia is like a huge problem with the narratives around health and body image. And, you know, the fact that young girls six to 12 are concerned about their weight, 40%, that's a, that's high. Um, that just goes to show you how potent and powerful and omnipresent our conversations around weight loss are. 
Like it actually shows you how much fat phobia has permeated the fabric of our culture. Because like, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, I've like watched Disney Pixar movies and like there's been fat phobic comments. And I remember the first time I watched the movies and I didn't pick up on it as being strange or crazy or like, oh my God, because it just reinforced everything that I've been hearing my whole life. But then Mm -hmm. when I like have watched these movies in more recent times, with now with the perspective and the education I have, I'm like, holy shit, that fat phobic comment does not belong in a Disney movie. But no wonder girls that young are worried about being fat. And I've even read um, the studies about girls who are more, they're, they're more afraid of being fat than being hit by a truck or more afraid of being fat than having their parents die an early death. Like Mm -hmm. that's alarming. It is. And honestly, I've worked with children for a while. So I'm a soccer coach right now. And over the summers I've worked with children and I've seen disordered behavior in children. And of course I've tried to intervene and pull them aside and be like, Hey, what's going on with you? And they're not comfortable talking about it, but I've seen it. And I've seen kids as young as nine years old be like, Oh, I'm going to eat my own fruit. Like I don't want the ice cream. So it's just really sad that kids that young have to be worried about this when all they should be worried about is having fun and enjoying themselves like kids should. And it just shows that diet culture is really um, affecting people of all ages. It's not just older people. So it's, it's really sad. And that's why I think um, taking a public health approach to disordered eating, body image, and all that kind of stuff that comes with it is really important because healing your own relationship with food is so important, especially when you've had disordered eating. But what if we could actually prevent anyone from having these disordered thoughts? So that's why we need to actually go and take these approaches to change diet culture Mm. before they even affect people anymore. Mm. Yes. And I definitely want us uh, to get into that, how we affect change on the micro level and on the individual level and how ultimately doing that on the individual level will affect the macro. Um, And before we get into that conversation so that we can provide a little bit of context, can you actually share with us a little bit about what you had said to me earlier? And that is that like fatness in itself is not a disease, yet obesity is treated like an an epidemic. Yes, absolutely. So this is something that I've learned from the book, Fat Politics. It's a very interesting book. And so fatness is not a disease in itself. And obesity is treated like a disease epidemic, like cancer and any other chronic diseases. And so the obesity epidemic is actually fairly new. Um, Obesity and epidemic were two words and terminology that wasn't used together before the year 2000. That's something that just wasn't really that common. Um, So the basis of the obesity epidemic um, was based upon BMI. And the super interesting thing about BMI is that BMI was never created um, to be an indicator of health whatsoever. It was created for um, insurance purposes. Uh, they wanted to find ways that they could charge people more money. And so what they did was they created BMI to quantify the population in quotes, and um, then they can charge you more money for your insurance. Uh, With BMI, they're saying that the basis of this epidemic is that 66% of people are overweight or obese. And I find it really hard to believe that 66% of people are lazy and unmotivated as people claim that overweight and obese people are, that the actual way that we quantify it is just wrong. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Most of- people are trying really freaking hard. Absolutely. To be better. Like so hard that it becomes their life. Yeah. And so again, um, BMI was never meant to quantify health. It was never meant to be a measure of health, but it was just adopted this way. Yeah. Um, and people use the premise of this obesity epidemic as a business model. So we're seeing people selling things, capitalizing off people's insecurities to sell products and services for weight loss. And I think that, like you've said in other podcasts that I've heard, um, the pursuit of health and wellness, um, it's good to pursue health. Of course, everyone wants to be in good health, but that doesn't mean we have to be pursuing weight loss. Those two things are not synonymous, but people want you to think that it is so they can sell you things and they can capitalize off of your insecurity. So. Yeah, definitely something that is really irritating to me, seeing other people try to sell things and try to, you know, get rid of cellulite or any other natural things on a body. And it just, it's really wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's kind of mind boggling 
right, or mind-blowing at first, I think when you're really caught up in it and then you hear these types of conversations, they appear radical. Mm -hmm. And then you start to let them sink in a little bit and permeate and you kind of try on the, the new perspectives of like, why have I been taught that a naturally occurring part of myself is disgusting? Mm-hmm. Yep. And when I, then you consider that like pretty much most women on planet earth have all of the things that we're told they're disgusting. You're like, wow, yeah, that's a great business model. And you mm-hmm. actually look at it from that perspective and you sink into it a little bit. You actually see it for what it is. And then I think you either get like angry or sad and it's through those emotions that you then like transform and you're like, wow, I'm going to like stop. I'm just going to stop believing in this bullshit. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to accept at first because you've just been trained to see these parts of your body as disgusting and undesirable. So looking in the mirror and seeing them and not feeling like you're actively trying to change them feels wrong at first. And it's really sad that everyone's been trained to think that. But slowly over time, um, when you start educating yourself on diet culture and its toxicity, it's just easier to accept that this is totally normal and healthy. Um, Especially for me thinking about my future and wanting to have children. I mean, I was always so hard on my stomach. That was just one thing that I just hated. And I thought, oh, why can't I get rid of this stomach fat? And not only did that come from me, but I went and saw a personal trainer and he did the in-body machine on me. And he said, oh, like there's fat you can lose. And I'm sitting here like, I'm already starving. I already lost my period. I already have low blood pressure. My hair is falling out. Like I'm already trying so hard. I'm already unhealthy because of my restriction. And you're telling me I have more fat to lose. And so it's just reinforced by so many health professionals that we're supposed to trust. And so it's just really upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. It's really upsetting when you actually start to see it from this perspective and you actually take on more education because our our education is so siloed. Our education is like siloed and delivered within the context of fat phobia, Mm -hmm. diet culture. And so when you actually approach health with a weight neutral lens, you realize like how, how misinformed and toxic, toxic all of this is. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. 100%. Okay. So I'd love to dive in with you. Um, let's talk a little bit about the socio-ecological model within the public health framework and how we could use this approach to stop the cycle, uh, of diet, the the cycle and damage of diet culture. So explain to us what that model is and what it encompasses, and then we can kind of maybe discuss like what it looks like in each level. Sure. Yeah. So the socio-ecological model is a model that's used in public health. Um, and it's a multidimensional approach to behavior change. And in this case, I applied the model to dieting and how specifically we should not be dieting and engaging in that kind of behavior. And these are different interventions at each level. There's five levels. There's individual, interpersonal, organizational, and environmental. Excuse me, that's four, not five. Sorry about that. But um, yeah, so at these different levels, um, how we can impact change. And when you're taking on a big task of tackling diet culture. It can be very overwhelming on where to start. And so when you break it down this way, it seems a lot easier. And there's definitely things that people can do individually to impact diet culture, but also um, people who dedicate their life to changing diet culture can also impact it on a much larger scale. Mm. Can you briefly explain what individual means, what interpersonal means, what organizational means, and what environmental means? And then we can dive a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So individual stuff that you can do just by yourself. Um, Interpersonal is your relationships with other people. So this is something on a day-to-day basis. So your conversations with others, and this can be really anyone in your life. Organizational is something on um, an organizational level. So this can include local businesses, organizations, anything that has to do with diet culture and any influence that it can have. Environmental is actually creating the environment um, for change. So making sure we have the correct environment for people to choose not to diet. Um, This would be different things like anti-fat phobia policies in the workplace, for example. And we'll dive more into that, but just creating the environment for people to make the non-dieting choice, the easy choice. Mm. And it's not, but hopefully that environment will change. That's what we're fighting for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So what are some things like more specifically that someone can do on the individual level to empower themselves 
to take an, an, an anti-diet approach in their health and wellness? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to heal your own relationship with food and you don't have to have had an eating disorder to heal your relationship with food since we are just so into diet culture and it's just surrounds us all i think we all kind of have views of food that we shouldn't have or uh, don't align with a non-diet mentality so healing our own relationship and kind of calling out when we have a diet culture type thought that's the most important thing so that can include multiple different things that can include taking a non-diet approach to nutrition practicing intuitive eating um, the book Intuitive Eating was super informative for me and kind of learning about what that actually looks like. And then just immersing yourself in non-diet culture media. So unfollowing any accounts that make you feel bad about yourself. Uh, that was a huge thing for me. So, I mean, staying off social media is great too for your mental health, but just making sure that you actually unfollow people that push diet culture because that's going to make it a lot harder to make this change. And then also finding mentors super important with social media. So obviously this podcast was something that helped me heal a lot. Um, I also love Linda Bacon. I met her one time. She's amazing. I Where? Know. What? I'm jealous. <laughs> yes. She came to my campus and we had lunch together and we had an amazing conversation about this. And it was just so great. I'm just so happy to have met her. We need to get her on the pod. I know. Yeah, that would be great. She's so wonderful. Yeah. Um, also, like some other accounts that I follow that I love personally for anyone listening, um, Body Pazzy Panda, she's great. Um, Jen Bretty, she suffered from an eating disorder and she kind of really questions diet culture and she has a YouTube account, she's great. Um, Bray of Sunshine, Brayden, um, she was an athlete and she really embraces intuitive eating. So all of these great Instagram accounts, just surround yourself with people that are taking the non-diet mentality and it will make the change so much easier. And then also another thing I find really important is just start questioning your own judgments about body size. So if you might see someone in a larger body and have a judgment that comes up, really just be like, okay, let me just deconstruct that. Why did I have that thought? What in society made me think the thought and the judgment that I just had? So that's super important to just really challenge your own thoughts about diet culture because the more you challenge it, then slowly your mindset will start to shift. And then my last one that I have listed for individual is just exercise that brings you joy and is healing and not energy draining. So I think that going along with diet culture, obviously pushing for the gym and pushing for, you know, you have to lift weights and you have to bodybuild and all this stuff to get the ideal body. I see a lot of that messaging. And so obviously movement is important for health and well-being. And that's something I've learned a lot through my education at UW Lacrosse. Um, but you need to stop listening to people to tell you that there's only one way to move your body and that's bodybuilding because that's not true. You can move your body in any way that makes you healthy um, and happy and, you know, makes you feel energized and doesn't drain your energy. So for example, my sister Sydney and my dad, they, they both hate the gym. They're not really gym people, but, um, my dad really likes to walk. It's really um, anxiety reducing for him. He likes basketball and my sister likes hiking. And so just doing anything to move your body is going to benefit you mentally and physically. And so I think that if people are trying to tell you to do a certain thing in the gym, don't listen to it. Um, again, that's diet culture because they're trying to tell you to change your body. So those are just a couple individual things that I think are super important. Yeah, they're all um, incredibly effective, right? So cleaning up your environment so that you're not like pouring salt in the wound, right? Like by paying attention to diet culture, you kind of reinforce the stuff that's causing you harm. So cleaning that up and not paying attention to it um, is super important. And then you mentioned like questioning your judgments. I think that that is huge. And it's such a huge part of like, changing the diet mentality like leaving the diet mentality behind and part of your diet mentality would have you judge people in a larger body right or judge people in a smaller body right like positively or negatively so questioning your judgment it's being like okay i'm judging this person why am i judging this person where did that come from what in culture has taught me that i should have this judgment and then actually choosing to be like yeah i'm not going to believe that as my truth anymore is so powerful um, and then, yeah, exercise. You said anything, any type of movement is going to have health benefits. I think that's super important. Like, literally walking, cleaning your kitchen, 
walking from the car to the grocery store, like all movement is good. It doesn't need to be strenuous and painful. Yes. It's so important. People like just going to the grocery store. Are you moving? Yes. Then it's good for your health. I think people are overwhelmed by movement and exercise and they're like, well, I don't like the gym, so I'm just not going to do anything. But it's just really important that there's just so much you can do and it's really easy to find joy in at least one form of movement. So that's really important to me as well. Yes. Amazing. Okay. So that was on the individual level. Now let's go to the interpersonal level. How can we affect change in that area? Yeah. So this level includes your day-to-day interaction. So there's a huge opportunity here to help people around you. So first of all, sharing non-diet culture resources with your friends. So if you like this podcast, for example, sharing this podcast is great. Um, Instagram accounts, anything that's non-diet culture and helps educate people, articles or anything like that, books, any resource, share that with your friends who you think may need it. Share it with your friends who you think might not need it. Just share that and people will start to learn more because I think the number one thing that's the problem is that people accept diet culture as it is. And this is kind of going against what they've been taught their whole lives. Um, Yes. That's important to mention. I think that at first there's going to be a lot of resistance to all of this because it literally goes against the grain of conventional wisdom and what you've been told your whole stinking life. So I think it's normal to have resistance, to get judgmental, to get defensive, to not want to believe it. I think that that's a normal reaction to Mm -hmm. learning all of this stuff, you know? Oh yeah, exactly. Um, Also, I think a non-diet approach to nutrition is super important. I think you're seeing a lot more dietitians that take a non-diet approach, and I love seeing that on social media. Um, Unfortunately, some don't, and unfortunately, there are some people online who claim to be nutrition experts when they don't have any formal training. And that's also very damaging um, to people who don't exactly know who is trained to say what and all that kind of stuff. And going off of that. It's a slippery slope though. Cause you mentioned yeah. something kind of eye opening when I was just listening to you speak, you were like, you're seeing registered dietitians who take a non diet approach, but then you see registered dietitians who don't. So just having credentials doesn't actually mean that what they're sharing is going to be helpful or true. Is that kind of what you just said? That's exactly right. That's true. And it also depends when these people are educated. You see a lot of registered dietitians that are still teaching things that are very outdated. Nutrition is constantly updating. And so be careful about your source and what advice people are telling you. Going off of that, no diet culture talk. Um, maybe you eat too much and you feel kind of gross. That's fine. But don't be like, oh my gosh, I ate so much. Now I need to go to the gym. Now I need to do this. Because, I mean, maybe you internalize that and that's because of diet culture. But also there's people out there that are now thinking, oh, now when I eat too much, now I need to do this because you're saying that you need to do it. And so that's super important that you don't do that, especially for me, my motivation to kind of change the way I talk about things was that I was like, wow, would I want my future child to talk about their body the way that I talk about mine? Or do I want my future child to fall into dieting? No, I, I don't. That sounds terrible. I would just, I would feel awful if um, anyone talked to themselves the way that I used to talk to myself. And so it's really important that you don't make that commentary about what you're eating what your body looks like, what anyone else's body looks like, or anyone else is eating. So that's so important on the interpersonal level. It's just, you can have judgments and they pop up and that's natural, but just keep them to yourself. Mm. So this is perfect because it, it coincides and reinforces the message that I shared on the podcast that came out before this one about how we have to be the change we want to see in the world. And when we talk negatively about our body, we reinforce body shame for other women. And when we talk bad about ourselves for eating certain foods and we feel shame and we, we say, oh, I really need to work out or I need to like eat better or like make up for this, we reinforce those behaviors for other people. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. if we really want to affect change, not only within ourselves, but on the macro for other people, we, we can't do those behaviors for ourselves 
Because when we do them, we reinforce them for other people. Like you said, you got like re positively reinforced people saying that you were like so disciplined and so good with your food. Like it gets positively reinforced. And so we have to be the change ourselves in order to affect change with others. Right. So like if we shame our body, our daughters are going to pick up on that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so, so important. Um, and then taking that a little step further is actually challenging weight loss talk that you hear. And this can be really tough because I know that it's kind of hard to create those conversations. But if you hear someone say something like, oh, I need to eat a salad tonight because I had a big breakfast. Just simply asking the question, oh, why do you think that? You know, it's pretty simple. And then that allows them to kind of internally reflect and respectfully asking that, um, they'll challenge their own internalization of diet culture. Mm. So important. Don't push people. Obviously, like this is kind of mind blowing stuff. This is big stuff because diet culture has been enforced our entire lives. So right away, they're probably going to be skeptical. So it's important not to push because we don't want to overwhelm people. But just asking a simple question like that would be like, hmm, like why, why do I need that salad? Why can't I have what I want? Why can't I listen to my body? And I don't want to in um, kind of make an assumption that eating a salad isn't listening to your body because sometimes it certainly is. But I think that a lot of people um, just think it's the right choice to make and it's not exactly what they actually want to eat. So Mm, yeah. So it's like how and why you're eating, not necessarily what you're eating. Cause like, yes, can, can a salad be like a healthy nutritious choice that you truly are craving and want? Of course. Can a salad be a choice that you're making out of fear or regret, or you're trying to make up for or be good? Yeah. So it's not what you're eating. It's not the salad. It's how, it's how and why you're eating it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And just like exercise preferences, that's the same with dietary preferences. Not everyone's going to like salad. And I just, I think it's so pushed. And I think people are like, you need to eat this and eat that. Um, and I went to the thrift store actually the other day and I found a book for kids called eat this, not that for kids. And it was a book that told kids what to eat and what not to eat. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is terrible. This is so problematic. Like, I just can't believe that they have this book for children. I wish y'all could see my face. Oh my God. <laughs> what? It had pictures of food. Um, and then on one page it said, eat this. And it was a bunch of food and not that. And then things they shouldn't eat. And I'm just like, wow, this is. I we're teaching book people so how to restrict and to have, we're teaching people how to have eating disorders. Like that's how toxic diet culture has become is that we're teaching people how to have disordered relationships with food. Like that's how far fat phobia has gone. It's not about health anymore. Yep, exactly. So yeah, it's just, especially for children. I mean, not that it's okay to push diet culture on anyone, but for kids, like I just, I, that was unbelievable me seeing a book like that. Um, but yeah, that's why the interpersonal level is so important. So we can challenge these ideals. And what's next? Organization, organ, organizational. I can't talk. <laughs> yes, organizational. So it's important not to actually perpetuate diet culture in the workplace or in schools. So let's start by educating community health education. That's what my major. And so it's important to teach kids and adults intuitive eating instead of the eat this, not that mentality or calorie counting. And so let's actually educate people on their hunger and fullness cues and how to respect them, um, honoring their cravings instead of calorie counting. This is really important because if you tell someone, okay, don't eat the pizza because it's high in calories. And if you eat too much of it, you're not going to feel good and blah, blah, blah. You need to let people kind of learn what feels good for their body on their own. Like, for example, like Halloween candy. If you sit there and eat your entire bucket of Halloween candy, you probably won't feel good, but people are going to be more receptive to making that mistake one time and being realizing like, okay, too much candy won't make me feel good. I'm going to have a few pieces. That's the moderation that we want, but people sometimes need to experience that on their own instead of just taking away the candy and saying that's bad for you. Um, so teaching people about honoring their cravings. And again, you probably wouldn't feel the need to eat an entire bucket of candy if you had the couple pieces that you wanted and moved on with your life. And kids too, letting people make that mistake. Mistake. And like I said, eating candy is not a mistake, but you know, eating too much will not make us feel good. So 
um, again, eating to feel good instead of eating to look good, you know, pushing nutrient dense foods and referring to it that way. I think that's so important saying nutrient dense and not as nutrient dense, but it's also important to make the distinction that all foods can be nourishing like chocolate and cake and ice cream and all that kind of stuff that's nourishing, but so is broccoli and apples and fruit and vegetables and stuff. Um, there's just foods that have more nutrients than others. So talking um, about food in that way, instead of saying good or bad is super important. Also in fostering an environment that includes all aspects of health. So again, physical, mental, emotional health, these are all considerations. So if you're eating a diet um, that is very restrictive, yes, maybe on the outside, your body looks a more socially acceptable way, but your mental and emotional health is being neglected. And so honestly, when I see people say, oh, I am strictly counting calories. I have a restrictive diet because I'm pursuing my health. I say that that's bullshit because you're not pursuing health if you're only pursuing the way your body looks. Um, and then finally, one thing that is very important to me is body image programming for young girls and boys. So let's teach girls and boys how to love their bodies. Let's teach them how to move their bodies in ways that bring some joy. Let's teach them how to cook. Um, that includes cooking vegetables. That includes cooking, um, you know, cookies and fun foods and stuff. Um, let's teach them how to play sports and have other hobbies that bring them joy. So this all goes into body image. So it's very important to start when they're kids. Mm, okay. So this could be stuff that's done in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So that would be like the organization for kids. And then obviously in the workplace, like I have had so many clients tell me about their workplace weight loss competitions. Oh. And like the person who loses the most weight, like gets money. And I'm like, oh I've heard of that. I've heard of that. And it's just really, oh my goodness, it's not right. Like yeah. that is not about health. Let's see who can lose the most amount of weight in like 30 days and then you get money. I'm sorry. And that's not really a good way to like encourage productivity at the workplace when you're encouraging your, your, your employees to like starve themselves and like overexercise. Mm -hmm. Like how is that good for com the company? It's just not, it's so dumb. That's not about health. Like we're just so twisted. I know it's, I've seen so many challenges like that and it's so unfortunate. Um, yeah, because that's not nourishing yourself and exercising so much. That's really not going to help you in the workplace at all. Cause when I was doing that to myself, I was like falling asleep in my chair in the middle of the day. Like I just could not focus. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't even take care of myself when I was doing this to myself. Like I didn't even bother to put makeup on or try to look nice. Cause I didn't think I deserved to, because I didn't have the body I wanted yet. It's just, it's really important to support that in the workplace. And I mean, anywhere you go, you can uh, squash diet culture anywhere you go. So it doesn't matter where you are. If you hear something problematic, you can address it. And that includes in the organizational level. And I know that a lot of us, the first time we experience body shame is when we go to school. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I remember very specific things and comments that were made to me and I will never forget them. And I know that I'm coming from a privileged place um, to be living in a thin body because like I've seen in social media and I've heard on the podcast, like even just with imaging, like if you see an image of a thin person eating a burger, um, people will comment like, oh, like wife her up. Like, oh, she's, she's so awesome. But if you see someone in a larger body doing that, all of a sudden they're lazy. All and they get shamed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So definitely, I re definitely recognize that um, living in a thinner body, it might be not easier, but just a different experience of overcoming disordered eating and just kind of really reinforcing the messaging. Yeah, I think that it takes, it takes a lot of courage to, to no longer contribute. Uh, I'm sorry, no longer be complicit in the rules of diet culture, no longer trying to obey the rules of diet culture, like actually truly believing like my body is okay. And I don't have to lose weight takes courage. And it takes standing up against a lot of powerful, oppressive narratives within our society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? They want you to want to lose weight because that's how they make money. And that's, that's as simple as that. Think about how many products are sold, people trying to lose weight. And yep. so it's a capitalistic approach. And next level, final level, environmental. So talk to us a little bit about this level. 
So this is just creating an environment where people can choose to love their bodies and celebrate what their body can do. Um, so what's important on this level is policy. Um, so something that's very important is anti-fat phobia policy in the workplace discrimination laws. And so while people may say or think, oh, I don't discriminate based on looks or based on body size, there is fat phobic discrimination when it comes to jobs because people have these judgments about people who are living in larger bodies, like they're lazy and not as hardworking, which is not the truth and really has nothing to do with the job that they're doing. Um, so putting this actually in a policy would be super important. Another one I have down is just encouraging movement by allowing access to bike racks or walking trails. And let's do that instead of shaming people into exercising. So actually creating the environment where people can make the choice to move their body in a way that makes them happy instead of shaming them into going to the gym. That's super important. Um, education on how all foods are nourishing for our bodies in different ways. So like I mentioned before, when it comes to nourishment, all foods are nourishing. Any food that brings you joy is nourishing to you. Um, so again, some foods are more nutrient dense than others. That is true. Saying that all foods fit doesn't mean that all foods are equal on a nutrient standpoint, but it does mean that all foods fit into your diet if you so choose. And then of course, using models of all shapes and sizes and creating clothing for people in larger bodies. So, and I can't personally speak on this experience living in a thin body, but people in larger bodies have struggles finding clothing that fits them and that makes shopping a really difficult experience for them. Um, I also think that women's dress and pant sizes should be by um, waist, inseam, bust instead of numbers like and quantifying like small, medium, and large. Like men's because clothing. If you think about it. Yeah, like exactly. men's pants is like size 32, size, you know, like 33 and that's waist measurements. I've never thought about that. Yeah, and I think why why is it like that in men's clothing but not women's clothing? Because if you pick up a piece of clothing and it fits you and it's labeled as large, like, can you imagine the way it makes you feel to, to wear something that's labeled as large? And then you feel like you kind of internalize that. And that means that you're a large person. And so I just think it's important that why can't we just have clothing and, and dresses and pants that are actually by body measurements and not have these labels on them. Mm -hmm. I think that makes more logical sense. It's easier to find things because for example, for me, I, I might wear a size two and this store, but in the other store, I might wear a size six or eight or something. So wouldn't it just make more sense to do it that way anyway, not for a anti-diet culture approach, but just for a logical approach? So there would be like some consistency within sizing. Yeah, exactly. There's so many YouTube videos that are about like, you know, uh, like mid-size and plus-size girls, like trying on different sizes at different stores. And like, they don't fit in the same size at any store. And if it just went by measurement, by like your inseam and your waist measurement, well, then there'd be consistency because your waist doesn't probably change from size, from store to store. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Never thought of that. Yeah. And two, like people get so wrapped up in the size, like in the number, like for example, Massively. yeah, at my cousin's wedding. So I was ordering a dress and they told me, I gave them measurements and they're like, okay, we're going to order you in this size dress. And I was like, whoa that's way bigger of a number than I'm used to and all this stuff. And there was some pushback obviously because I was also in a disordered eating place and I was, you know, insecure about my body size. And so again, why can't we just order things and buy clothes based on our measurements alone? Why, why do these numbers have to be attached? Um, that's something that would change on the environmental level that I think would be important. Mm. And then the last thing that I have, and this would be more of a long-term goal, but abolishing BMI and creating a better system. So like I said before, two-thirds of people fall into the overweight or obese scale. Um, and that sounds like a scary number, and that's why people think that obesity is this big epidemic. Um, but again, we have to really question, is BMI the best way to quantify health and well-being? And the answer is no, it's not, because it's, it was never made to be that way. Um, and a couple other things that I learned from the Fat Politics Chapter 2 reading that I did, um, elderly people who fall into the overweight or obese category of BMI have a lowered mortality rate than those fall, who fall into normal BMI. And so people are saying, oh, I'm so concerned about your BMI because of your health. Well, elderly people with a higher BMI live longer. So you really can't say it's about health when there's these statistics out there. Mm. Um, 
yeah, that like actually having fat on the body is protective and yeah. leads to longevity later in life. And the book literally said like the only time that fat on your body is inhibiting your health is if it is so much that you can't move. So and much that you can't move. Right. Exactly. But if you can move and you can carry out your day-to-day -day life and you can be doing things that are good for all aspects of your health, then is it really, does it really matter what you weigh? No, it doesn't. And also I, I do health screenings as part of my internship and I have known personally a couple people that I've done screenings for and their BMI will be overweight. But since I know them personally, I know that they they love the nutrient sense foods and they're doing a lot of healthy behaviors, but they still fall as overweight. So it's really not a measure of health and it, it's really problematic. It needs to be changed. Yeah. It's just stigmatizing mm -hmm. because again, like we've talked about on the podcast, like over what weight, like there's an assumption made that your body is supposed to be a certain weight when you call someone overweight, but over what weight everybody's body is different. Mm -hmm. It's just a problematic term in and of itself, like over what weight, it's just stigmatizing and it just adds to the thinner is better conversation. And I've talked about this on the podcast too. Like my boyfriend falls into the obese category on the BMI and like 80% of the time we eat the exact same food, the exact same amount of food, and we exercise the exact same 80% of the time, 20% of the time we go out to restaurants and order different things or like I'll go to a yoga class without him. But most of the time we're doing the exact same shit and like yeah. She happens to be obese, and I happen to be in a, quote, normal weight. It's so problematic. It's messed up. It's yeah. so messed up. And it's just, there's no way that that BMI number can summarize and can represent your health. There's no way. Health is just too complex for that number to be able to summarize your health. And honestly, there really is not a correlation, and it has a lot to do with your genetics think about it. There's so many people with different hair colors, different eye colors, different skin colors in the world. So if there is all this diversity, then why is body diversity not accepted? That doesn't make any sense. Why, if there's so much different diversity of other characteristics, then you'd think that body shape would be more accepted as something that's just genetically different and not the result of laziness or lack of motivation. Yeah, that's super potent. Like, oh, oh, nature just, just decided to, like, fuck with us on this one. You're actually all supposed to be, like, this size. Huh. You're all iPhone 6s. Huh. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I just, it's really hard to kind of grasp. And it's crazy to think that this is the kind of messaging that is still out there. And it's going to be a battle to keep pushing for it. But there are some positive changes. And it can be really disheartening to kind of see this messaging. but really just focusing on the positive changes that are being made and we're kind of moving in the right direction. Mm, yeah, like more and more people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um in conclusion, can you just kind of wrap up um why it is so important to take a public health per approach and why prevention is so important and like let's start there and then I have one more question. So overall why is it important to look at this as a public health issue? Yeah. So a lot of times when you're being trained in health and wellness with a college degree, they'll tell you that obesity is the problem. To me, I think that that's not the problem. It's the perpetuation of diet culture, eating disorders, and just creating a space of poor body image for pretty much everyone. I mean, there's a lot of people, there's way more people who are in diet culture than there are people who take an undieting approach. And that, that's a problem. Taking a public health approach means that you go out of your way to uh, change the culture because changing yourself and changing your own views is great. And I'm really, really happy when people have that realization, but then also if we want to prevent this from happening, and that's the key part is prevention because anyone who's gone through disordered eating knows that they wouldn't wish it upon anyone else. Um, then we need to take these multi-level approaches to stop this from happening. Mm, yes, yes, yes. You got to be the change. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then my follow-up question to that, I also, I think it was super potent that you said, like, you go to school and you study any health and nutrition major, and they teach you that obesity is the problem. Like, you're not learning this stuff in school anyways because institutionalized fat phobia, like, people mm -hmm. making money off of this shit, right? College programs are sponsored by weight loss companies, right? Like, there's so many levels of, of it. Um, but to build upon what you had said, I'd love to know, like, 
what is the public health implication of so many people having disordered eating, eating disorders and body shame? Like, how is that affecting our society? Having, and it's really hard because this is the accepted message. Um, but it is creating a space of negative mental health. There are clearly a lot of people out there with mental health issues and, um, it's being unaddressed and a lot of it has to do with fear around food and stress around food. And so, um, when we have diet culture, we're going to see more people having eating disorders, um, especially with social media. Again, it makes it a lot harder when social media is around. Um, another implication is that, um, and this is in the non-diet world, this is kind of well-known 95% of diets fail, um, and result in long-term weight gain. And so I would never tell people, take the non-diet approach so you don't gain weight. That's not the kind of messaging I want to send because then, again, that's perpetuating fat phobia. But taking the non-diet approach to enjoy your life again and to not be stressed about food and improve your mental health and just have a lot more happiness, that is why we want to push for it. And again, whenever something is affecting a large population, which dieting is affecting a large population, then it's a public health issue and needs to be addressed. Mm, yeah, it's a public health issue. It's a social justice issue. It's a human rights issue. It's a discrimination issue. It's just all across the board, you know? But I love this perspective. Thank you for bringing it to the pod and sharing what you've learned with us and how it applies and seeing how we can affect change on the micro. And by doing so, we can affect change on the macro. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, okay. Spell out your Instagram handle so that people can come find you and DM you and tell you how much they love this. Yeah. So my Instagram, it's brand new. So check it out. It's at Shelb Eats. So it's S-H-E-L-B-E-A-T-S-S-S. And Read if you have a better suggestion, then feel free to pitch it because I'm not creative in that way. Uh, well, my handle is Kara's Kitchen. So me neither. <laughs> thank you so much Shelby it was great to have you on yes thank you wait wait don't go yet was this episode helpful did you like it did you get a lot out of it if so the most helpful thing that you can do in return is to leave a ratings and review on iTunes or to share the podcast in your Instagram stories I would be so grateful that helps the, pe the podcast keep going. It lets me know that you're listening and it helps it reach more people. So I would be so grateful if you would go and do that if you got a lot out of this episode. And I want to hear from you. What do you guys think after listening to these two podcasts? Is your perspective changing? What have you learned? Uh, do you disagree with me on something? I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you're getting out of this. Um, so that it's not just me talking to myself in my living room. Let's start a conversation. Please reach out to me. Please let me know. Let's start a dialogue. Um, has the podcast helped you? Has it affected you? Are you learning? Are you growing, evolving? Are you shifting, transforming, transmuting? All of those beautiful words. Um, okay. Thank you so much for tuning in. I love you. I will see you and chat with you online and next week. Thank